You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Well, let's go into God's Word. We're going to go to now uh, Hebrews chapter 11. We continue in our preaching series through the book of Hebrews, pausing a little bit in chapter 11 as we look at this catalog of faith of characters in the Bible who stood firm in their faith and were commended for their faith because of their their faith in God. And we're going to be reading uh, verses 8 through 19 in chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received their promise was in the the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is God's word. Well, here we are in this catalog of faith of about 10 men, women who were commended for their faith. They were commended for their faith for doing the very thing that the author of Hebrews is wanting to impress upon his listeners. That Jesus is better than all things and all people for all time. And in the face of, of an uncertain future, God can be trusted. His promises are faithful. He is true and he is good. And we will never regret standing firm in God. And last Sunday, we looked at Enoch, who we know very little about, now shifting to Abraham, a man we know a tremendous amount about. Mentioned 300 times in the Bible. There are 27 books in the New Testament. He's mentioned in 11 of them. In Hebrews 11, most people get one or two verses. He gets 12 verses, 15 chapters in the book of Genesis are dedicated just to God's plan and purposes for this one man. 15 chapters in Genesis. Three major religions find their beginnings with Abraham as their patriarch. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. What does a man like this teach us about faith? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. Abraham is presented as the as the prototypical man of faith. 
the prototypical person of faith. You might expect a man like this who becomes the the prototypical person of faith in three major world religions that he would have come from a, a privileged background and pedigree or a family of origin, but the opposite is really true. Abraham began as a, a pagan man, a man submersed in a culture of, of polytheism, not one God, but multiple gods. He lived in an ungodly city named Ur, who were known for their idol worship. His father was a godless, wicked man. So here is the pedigree of a person who is the patriarch of the Christian faith. Godless family of origin, a godless city, a godless man himself. So if you're looking to start a new religion, those are the pre-qualifications. We also mentioned last week that faith is very simply this. Faith is believing in what we do know and trusting God for what we don't know. Believing the things, taking God at his word for the things that he has revealed to us about himself, about his character and nature and who he is and what he has done, and believing in that revelation and then trusting God for the the blind corners in life and the things we don't know, trusting him for the areas of life that we've yet to see how they will go and how his promises will come about. We don't know those details. When you look at faith like this, you'll see that faith is not just another virtue in our life. It's not just a virtue, another virtue in our bag of virtues. It's not like faith and humility and gentleness and charity and and I, I want to be a well-rounded person, and so here is just a, a collection of virtues. But faith, as presented in Scripture, is so much more. It is to radi- radically reorient and rearrange and recalibrate every part of our emotions and affections and motivations and actions and desires and everything in our life. It is meant to be the catalyst and engine behind everything we do to radically reorient everything about the human constitution, not just an add-on into our life. And each character in Hebrews chapter 11 is commended for different expressions of their faith, different expressions for how they trusted God in the midst of an uncertain future. An uncertain future that the, the listeners of this letter are hearing in the first century, they are facing an uncertain future. They're prone to wander. Their faith is, is on shaky ground. They are unstable and vulnerable because of outside circumstances. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, stand firm. You won't regret it. Let me give you some examples of people who trusted God. And who were commended for it. So here is where our, our passage wants us to focus on today. Looking at the different aspects of different people who are commended for their faith, what do we want to see about Abraham? In a single word, here is where our focus is today. Obedience. That's the word that we are meant to focus on for Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed God. And then as we look at his life, we see in how he obeyed God. In what way was his obedience as a result of his faith in God, in what way was it fleshed out in his life? The act of faith for 
which Abraham was commended was obedience. Obedience is not a natural disposition of Abraham's heart. You see, it wasn't something he was just naturally good at. We shouldn't look at Abraham and say, well, he just has a personality of compliance and obedience. Obedience for Abraham was an act of faith, acting on his convictions that he believed in what God said and trusted in him for what he had yet to know. It flowed from faith. And through the course of his life, this would create for, for us a portrait of of what it looks like to walk in faith. What happens when we actually live out an obedient faith in God? An obedient faith for Abraham would move him in two different directions, as we see in our passage, and those are the two different directions that we want to look at today. Obedient faith will draw us out from our places of comfort, and it will draw us in closer to God. It will call us out, as Abraham, as Abraham was called out of his place of comfort, and it will draw us closer to God himself. We should always be asking us, where is our faith taking us? If you would reflect on that for a moment, where is my belief in God and my disposition towards God, where is it moving me? Is it, is, do I see the progression of my life moving closer to God or further away? Am I, is he calling me out? Am I responding in faith? So faith, obedient faith, will call us out. Why don't we look at that one first? God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to leave your hometown. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your friends. I want you just to leave your place of comfort, everything that you have known, and go to a place that I will show you. And this wouldn't have been a, a horrible idea, but let's consider where he lived. Abraham lived in the city of Ur. It was one of the greatest city in modern times. It's a position in modern day southern Iraq. And it was occupied by about, by about 300,000 people. It was a major cultural center in first century Middle East. It was advanced in math and culture and the arts. It was party central. It was a, a, a well advanced place to be. It was a familiar place for him. Every year, the Euphrates River would flood and it would flood the desert. And the result would be this oasis in the desert of green, bountiful, lush, meadows and a place of great beauty and rest. And God says to Abraham, leave all of that and go into the desert. If you're going to respond to God by faith, don't be surprised if he calls you into unfamiliar, uncomfortable situations. That is that is what God seems to do. Why, why is that? And that's, I think, a good question to ask is, I think we know that that's what God does. He draws us out. He calls us out, leave a place of comfort, go into this unfamiliar place. So the question is, why does God operate in that way? And a couple of reasons. One, because God is, his wisdom is, is far beyond ours. And, and that's, that's, that's the first one. But another one is because a call to obedience is always a call to separation. 
A call to obedience is always a call to separation. It's impossible to have an encounter with God and to leave unchanged. We will always move towards God in obedience or away from him when we have an encounter with him. Obedience is always confrontational. It's, it's always, it always separates us. It always disrupts and, and dismantles our idol of comfort and convenience. I just want to be comfortable. I want to be at peace. I want things to be familiar. I don't want any surprises. Why does obedient faith call us out of that? Because discipleship is always about separate, putting one thing behind us and another thing in front of us. It is this continual pattern of, of leaving sin and turning to God, turning from sin, turning to God in faith. It is this constant motion and rhythm of discerning our hearts, repenting of sin, leaving that, and obediently walking towards Jesus. And we just do that several times throughout the day and through the course of, of the week. We are constantly making choices for what to walk away from and what to walk to. Obedient faith is an act of separation from one thing to another. And Jesus says to those who might follow him, if anyone would desire to be my disciple, he must pick up his cross and follow me. John 17, Jesus prayed that that his followers who would come to know in him through the ministry of his disciples, and that would be us, we would come to know in the gospel through the word of God, passed down through generations. He says, I pray that they would be set apart, that they would be sanctified, that they would be separated. Separated from things that destroy and separated from sin. And that they would be united by faith in the love of God. In Mark 1, Jesus calls his first disciples and the narrative goes a little like this. He comes to Simon, he comes to Andrew, and he says, follow me. And then the narrative tells us immediately they dropped their nets and followed Jesus. They separated from what they were doing and they walked with Jesus. And Jesus comes to James and John and says, follow me. And immediately they left their father and their hired workers and they walked with Jesus. Whenever Jesus calls us to himself, he's always calling us away from something else. Like God called Abraham out, obedient faith will call us out too. Look again at the language of verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went, and he went out. And this is, this is the most terrifying next line in, in, in all the scripture. <laughs> Not knowing where he was going. Abraham, leave everything you know. Okay, God, I'll follow you anywhere. Just tell me where we're going. I'll let you know when we get there. No, that's, that, doesn't, that doesn't work for me. Doesn't that sum up the Christian faith, though? I love you. I've given my life for you. Nothing can take you from my hands. Trust in me. And we say, this is the love that I've always been looking for. My life is yours. Now follow me. Great, where are we going? I'll tell you when we get there. God looks upon us. He gives us himself. He sacrifices his son so that you and I would know his boundless love and peace. And we say, great, I'm all in. So what does that mean for my life? 
you'll find out what that means for your life when we get there. Will there be a lot of grief along the way? Will there be loss? I guess we'll have to see. But you're not going to leave me, right? You're going to love me forever. I'm going to love you forever. And the people that I love, they'll love me forever too, right? I'll, I'll answer that question later. But you, God, you're loving and you're good and you're wise and you're righteous. And so the places that you'll bring me and the circumstances that you'll allow in my life, those will always be joyful places, right? I'm not going to answer that question just yet. You ever call someone over and say, hey, come here and check this out for a second. Why? What is it? Just come over here and I'll show you when you get here. No, I'm good. You ever, do, you ever see that? Hey, check this out. It's hilarious. Just tell me what it is. Why? Well, what is that? Now, obedient faith calls us out. And we go, not because of the certain path, but because of the one who calls us out. We follow God, not because of the path he promises for us, but we follow him because of the one who's calling us. It is God, and he is good, and he is faithful. And Abraham was willing to leave the comfort of his home and everything that he knew to go into the wilderness desert to pursue a city that God was calling him to. Why? Our verse tells us that because he knew the place he was being called out to was designed by God. God is the designer of this destiny, the designer of this place. The place that he was calling Abraham was designed by God, and he trusted God. I know some of you would say that it's hard to do this because you just struggle with controlling your life. Yeah, it's hard to trust in God because I'm just, I like to be in control. I'm a control freak, we might say. And I wonder if that's too simplistic of an answer, if, if you are prone to give that answer. I just kind of like knowing things because I just like order. I like to be in control. I, I, I don't like surprises. Okay, fair enough. But I wonder if that's a little too simplistic. And maybe it's not getting truly to the heart of the issue here. I think it has more to do with this. Our struggle to believe that realizing God's promise will always be worth the discomfort of obedient faith. Our struggle is not in giving up control. Our struggle is really being convinced that me getting up and following you and all the discomfort that it will bring will always be worth what you've promised to me. Hey, come here. I got to show you this. What is it? Just come here and I'll show you when you get here. No, thanks. There's something in that that says me getting up, stopping what I'm doing, and trekking across the room is simply just not worth it for me. I'd rather just be curious. But if you trusted that person, knowing that that person who called you over had the best meme to show you, oh, she always shows me the best memes. This is going to make my day. You would jump up out of your seat. You would go and watch it, and you would say, now that I see it, you've just affirmed that you never disappoint. You always deliver. You never let me down. I will get up a hundred times again. Call me out anytime you have a meme like that and I will come running. 
Now, what, that doesn't have so much to do with the meme, but the, but the trust in that person who's showing you. Okay, you with me? I think it has more to do with that. Do we actually trust God? And what the writer of Hebrews is wanting to show us is that let me give you all these examples and let me teach you for, for nine chapters, ten chapters before, that Jesus is better than everything and everyone that you have ever known that he has never let anyone down. He has always been faithful to his promises. In fact, he has created the whole world and, 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 and he is sovereign over all circumstances so that you would know him and the boundless nature of his love and his steadfast faithfulness. And, and he has never not been true to his promises. So when he calls you out into uncertain future, we should think less about the circumstances of that path and more about the credibility of the one who calls us. And that is not to diminish in any way the scariness and of, that, of that path that God calls us to. Abraham believed God. He was so convinced that there would be no discomfort too great for him to say no to God. Example? He was willing to give his own son. He said, there is no discomfort too great that I will face to not trust you. And God said, sacrifice your son. He said, okay. Why? Because we learn in this text, because Abraham said, because I know that you can do whatever you want to do. And if this son is the promise of my inheritance. If he's dead, you'll find a way to raise him up. You'll find a way to make it happen because you said it would. And so nothing will get in the way. And God looked at Abraham and said, that's faith. That's faith. Not to have a certainty of your circumstances, but a certainty of me. When I promise, I am faithful. Obedient faith calls us out. And we have an idol of comfort. We have an idol of convenience. We have an idol of safety. We don't want to be uncomfortable. And if we can perceive that, that, an, that God calling us out will cause grief in our life and discomfort in our soul, we will say, There's, I want to find a different way. But God says, just, just leave the place that you are and go into the place I'm calling you. That's all you need to know. All you need to know is what is God asking you to do? And then the question becomes, are you going to listen? Are you going to debate? Are you going to rationalize? Are you going to justify? Are you going to try to persuade or manipulate God into seeing things your way? Or are you going to trust in him? And when he calls us out, he doesn't just call us out into nothingness. He calls us out, and the act of being called out into obedience is actually a movement not away from him, but actually closer to him. And so when God calls us out of our comfort into a place of maybe an uncertain future, he's actually inviting us into a deeper relationship with him. It's what he always does. Obedient faith will draw us near to himself. That's our second movement. 
And I, don't, I, I do think that this is actually the harder part to realize in the, the path of discipleship and in faith in, in Jesus and trusting in God. This is the harder part because the first part, you get, I get it. God calls us out into difficult places. That's been a testimony of my life. Life is pain. At times, it's really painful. And this is the harder part. The harder part here is to believe that obeying God and doing that is actually best. It's always good. When you're a child, the idea of obeying is often extremely negative because obedience is what? Obedience is a loss of personal freedom. Obedience is a loss of autonomy. It's a loss of, of control. It's a loss of individualism. It is a loss of a lot of things. In many ways, obedience feels like a death to self. And we see that when we are told to obey we see that in our kids when we ask them to obey and we see them wrestling with that autonomy. Because no one likes to give up personal freedom. But what is surprising is when we look at Abraham and others who are commended for their faith, we see that they were motivated to, be, be, uh, to obey, not because of what they might lose, but they were motivated to obey because of what they knew they would gain. And so because they knew that in obedience, they were gaining this, this, this deeper communion with God, deeper relationship with God, a closeness, a realization of his peace and his love, they knew that in following God's commands, they were actually moving closer to him, and that's the very thing that they wanted. So much so that we read throughout the Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture that people are asking God, please, please tell me more of what to do. Give me more commands. Who does that? Why would they do that? Because they knew that God's word and his commands were truth. And his commands were an invitation to joy. And so they, they said, lay it on me. Guide me by your word. Lead me in all truth. Your statutes, your commands are pleasing to my heart. They are like honey to my lips. I cannot get enough of you telling me how to live and where to go because that is where I find you and that's where I want to be. That's Abraham. This is a, and this is a mark of spiritual maturity. As we look at children who grow, they realize that sometimes doing things, making choices that have short-term negative impact, but that are the right thing to do, will always turn out for the better. That's maturity. And that's spiritual maturity as well. Understanding that obedience to God does not push us further away from God, but it actually draws us closer to him. Always and so there's almost a, a strange delight in obeying God because we know that as his commands are given to us, he's not giving us just a list of commands to obey in order to be better people or to improve our character. He's giving us things to, to obey so that we can delight in him. Obeying God will always draw you closer to him. There are two extremely difficult things that Abraham had to do in order to obey God. He had to leave everything he, he ever knew, and he had to offer his son Isaac up to be sacrificed. 
The question here, does God test us? He does. He does test us. For what purpose does he test us? And how you answer that question, I think, will tell you or reveal to you what you believe about God, what you believe about his nature and his character, what you believe about how he looks at you. Why does he test us? If you say he tests us so that we could so that we can grow in character, so we can grow in integrity, uh, because what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, right? Sometimes what doesn't kill you just makes you want to die. <laughs> that didn't kill me, and I kind of wish it did. If we live on that principle, then when we see difficult things in our life come our way, We think that purpose is just to make us better people, to build our character. Then the purpose of your life and all of its trouble is just to be better tomorrow than you are today. And I want you to know that that's a, um, that is a value of our culture that is highly regarded, to improve yourself, to be better than you are today. And what doesn't kill you makes you stronger because being stronger is the goal. Character improvement is the goal. That's not the goal of the gospel. That's not the goal for Abraham. Because you don't need God to be a better person. You really don't. You could do it. There's a lot of people that do it. There's a lot of people that are better than Christians, in fact, in character, in integrity, in virtue, in work ethic, in a lot of things. But if you say the purpose for his testing is so that my capacity to enjoy, to know his fellowship and his love may increase, then I know that everything he brings into my life, even through his commands that draws me out, calls me out from my comfort and into hard places, will always draw me closer to him, which will give me ultimately the joy and peace that I'm looking for, then the purpose of life and all of its trouble be, is to become increasingly closer to Jesus. I remember my own personal testimony many years ago when I felt called. God said, I want you to plant a church. I want you to be a pastor. And I said, sorry, I couldn't hear you. Um, <clears throat> connection is a little fuzzy. And, God, and, and, and he said, well, what's the worst that can happen? And I said, well, I could be miserable for the rest of my life. And then what? And then I'll draw closer to you. And then what? And then I'll have a really great relationship with you for the rest of my life. And he said, sounds pretty great, doesn't it? I'm like, yeah, I guess it does. So the worst that can happen is that we, we, we go through pain, we go through grief, we go through loss, we face uncertain future, and sometimes really hard things happen. And I think God wants to say, well, what's the worst that can happen then in that pursuit? Well, then I press into you and you sharp, sharpen me, you shape me, you mold me. My heart expands with a greater capacity to know you, to love you, to be satisfied fully in you. And God is wanting to tell us that it could come from no other way. It's why people, men and women that we look up to, men and women of faith, that have valiant faith and that, be, that we look at them as, as, uh, as like 
amazing heroes of our faith, but if, if, you, if they told you their story, it would, it would be filled with roads, uh, filled with conflict and grief and failure and loss. And they kept moving towards God. How did, how did Abraham see Jesus? How does, he, how does he interact with this and all this grief and all this pain? Well, he, he trusts God. He knows the purpose of God calling him out is to become increasingly closer to him. Imagine there were times when Abraham suffered great loss. He, he wondered why certain things were happening. We, we know that that's his testimony. He even asked God, why, why are you telling me this now? I've, I've had, I, I, you gave me this promise. I'm 90 years old. I'm, I, I still don't have the son. My wife is, is well beyond birthing years. We see about 30 to 40 years of his life in, in Scripture, a snapshot of 30 to 40 years. And then you know that there are many times within that time frame where he was despairing. When his father died, he likely thought, God, what does this have to do with loving me? When his brother died, he may have thought, why are you taking away my family? When his wife couldn't get pregnant, he says, how is this a way that you would answer prayers? We've been praying for 30 years for her to get pregnant, and she's still not pregnant. I thought you loved us. He lived day to day, not knowing the future, and that's how we live today too. Day to day, not knowing the circumstances of the future, but we know the one who calls us into the future. And he says, I'll never, ever let you down. And what God has brought into your life today is, is not to test the strength of your character, Okay? The trouble in your life is not to test the integrity of your will. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. This is drawing him, you closer to him. What's in the Bible is what, God, what Abraham did when God told him to offer his son as a sacrifice. In verse 19, he says, He considered that God was able to raise him up if he died. He tests us so that in exercising our faith, we might find him. And that God does this by means of drawing us closer to himself. Now, here's where we're kind of finish up. Do you know that Abraham died not realizing the promise that God made to him? Oh, gosh, that changes things. Does it? Does it change things? God said, I'm going to come out, come out. I'm going to give you a land, a nation, a people. You will be Father Abraham, the father of a nation. And he died without ever getting that. Okay. He left family. He left everything, family, friends, comfort, pleasures of all kind. And he got this close. And he never got it. Was God wrong? Was he wrong to trust in God? But here's, where, here's why Abraham is, a, is a, the prototypical man of faith, the prototypical person of faith for us. He said, I didn't miss the promise, because the promise was friendship, fellowship, it was unity, it was faithfulness of God. The promise was God himself, and that's exactly what I got. 
And I knew that nothing on this earth could match the spiritual treasure that awaits all who trust in God. And even though he did not grasp it with his own life, he already had everything that he ever needed. And here's what Jesus says of Abraham in John chapter 8. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What does that mean? Abraham didn't see that. He didn't see the fulfillment of God's promise. Jesus is saying, yes, he did. Jesus is saying, Abraham saw me. Abraham, in drawing closer to God in faith, in believing in God, he had the promise all along. He was drawing closer to God. It was relationship with God. It was redemption. It was the redemption of God. Obedient faith understands what will last forever and what won't last forever. Consider your, your two hands to live as a stranger in this world, because this is how Abraham lived, right? He's a stranger in a strange place trying to trust God. Consider your life as a stranger in this land, kind of walking through life, trying to be a faithful Christian. And on one hand, you have all the things of the world. You have all the temporary things that you hold on to. You have your life. You have your possessions. You have your worldly comforts. You have your, the, your reputation. You have all of these things. And then the, on the other hand, you have the, you have the permanent grasp on God and his promise. And we are told to hold tightly to the hand that holds God, for God's hand will never let us go. Hold tightly to his promises by faith and to hold loosely to the things of this world. But our problem is that we usually have those hands switched, right? We put the wrong glove on the wrong hand. And we hold tightly to this thing, the things of this world and say, but this is my comfort. These are the things that I need in my life because these are the things that make me happy right now. And then the things of God and the promises of God, we hold loosely and we say, prove it. Prove that you're good. Prove that you're faithful. We have them switched. If we have a firm hold on the hand that holds God's promises, what happens in the hand that holds the things of this world, it won't matter so much to us. They will, it will become increasingly loosed and loosened. We won't hide so hold so tightly. When, when our hand is filled with worldly pleasures, we will say, thank you, God, for your blessings. And we'll return those things back to God in acts of generosity and gratitude. We won't be overcome by those pleasures, but we will we'll be thankful for them. We'll use them for the good of others and the glory of God because we're holding tightly to the promises of God that never fail. Don't confuse the two. Grasp tightly to God. Grasp tightly to his promises. Grab tightly to, to him. And the more important than either of these hands is, is knowing, knowing the God who holds us. Knowing the hand that holds us. We are so secure in his love because he is the one who holds our life in his hands. And he will never let us go.